I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Agnes, we're back. We are back, This ben. is now officially a multi-year project. <laughs> we... This wasn't a one-off. This wasn't a flash in the pan. We are here to pod some more. We are. 2019. The podcast goes on. Yes, 2019. We're only, you know, over 20-something days into it. And yeah, it feels like we've been in 2019 forever. Indeed, indeed. Ben, you've been away though, haven't you? I've been away Last week, I, I was in Africa last week. You were in Africa. Very exciting. I went to Kenya and uh, Cote d'Ivoire for a new project, Common Futures Conversations, which is developing a digital platform for young people in Africa and Europe to discuss political issues and political challenges that are shared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really exciting to meet some of the people we'll be working with in those countries. Uh, they're all brilliant. And some of the organisations that are going to help us build this network and it should be really exciting actually the first step in this project is a major international survey Mm -hmm. he says self-aggrandizing as always a survey uh run by chatham house which is open at the moment it's live to Mm -hmm. anyone anyone under the age of 35 even agnes can respond to this survey all right I mean, yes, I can. Young people. Thanks, you. Yeah, yeah, Chatham House redefining young since uh, 1922. Not as much as the Conservative Party, let us not forget, last year they labelled everybody under 47 as young. Wow. Mm-hmm. Clutching at straws much. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. And I think that's that's going to be a really interesting divide that we, that we talk about in this project, actually, is our perspective in the UK as a kind of ageing population. And uh, some of these countries in in Africa that really like, the opposite is so it, it's the opposite is so true. Like it's when you talk, you're talking about meeting people in Kenya and what they were telling you about youth employment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, every first of January every year, a million new people enter the workforce because they leave school in December and they're looking for jobs in January. Uh, That's crazy. And and that's just—I mean—it's unfathomable. I—I I, I have to say, in my ignorance, I don't know the equivalent stat for the UK, but a million sounds like a lot yeah, definitely. <laughs> to it's be adding to your workforce when you can't necessarily create that many jobs. So, and be a really uh, interesting factor. Ben and our other colleague Tiggy gave us great fright for being in Nairobi when the terrorist attack happened last week. So glad that you're both still alive. Yeah, that's very we nice. Were, yeah, it was lucky. Yeah, it's bad news. Bad news for uh, Kenya. We're thinking of them. Indeed. So, on with the pod. Yeah, now that you've done your, your cell, My we will cell. put the link to the... It's a relatively soft cell. <laughs> we'll put the fair. link to the survey. it was even a call to action. <laughs> we'll put the link to the survey underneath this podcast, and I'd really recommend doing it. It's going to be a really exciting online platform, um, and we need as many people to feed into it as possible. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this week, this week, Ben, who have we spoken to? It's a really exciting We've first We've got a episode. bumper week for you. <gasps> oh, my goodness. We've got the big dogs in. We do indeed. So really exciting. Two really first. Two really great events at Chatham House today, featuring some some really big names in IR circles, academic circles. So to begin with, we've got John Mearsheimer, who is a titan of international relations, academia, uh, and he's based at the University of Chicago, and he's talking about uh, his new book, The Great Delusion, which is all about the rise and fall of liberal hegemony as a foreign policy tool. And then we've also spoken, very excitingly... To Margaret Macmillan, um, the doyenne of everything, to be honest. You may well have heard her wreath lectures last year on war, which were phenomenal. She's here to introduce um, the edition of International Affairs that she co-edited, World Politics 100 Years After the Paris Peace Conference. And we had a great chat about the last 100 years. So, should we have a listen? Let's have a listen. Okay, so here we are, back for the first episode of Undercurrents of 2019. Very exciting. Indeed. And it's fantastic to be joined today by John Mearsheimer. John is R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, which is one of the longer job titles 
that we've I think had. we've featured so far <laughs> on the series. <laughs> uh, and he is a mainstay of reading lists uh, in international relations courses all over the world. And we're really delighted he could join us today at Chatham House. His new book is titled The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. John, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. So correct me if I'm wrong, but a main thrust of the book is that something that you call this ideology of liberal hegemony is doomed to fail. What is liberal hegemony? My basic argument is that when the Cold War ended, the United States adopted a foreign policy of liberal hegemony. And basically what liberal hegemony is all about is remaking the world in America's image. And that has three principal elements. The first and most important goal is to turn as many countries as possible on the planet into liberal democracies. Mm -hmm. And the second goal is to help foster an open international economy where all of those liberal democracies are hooked on capitalism and there's a great deal of economic interdependence. And then the third and final goal of liberal hegemony is to get states in the system, especially the major countries like Russia and China, integrated into the international institutions that help make that international economy work so well. So those are the goals, and that's really what liberal hegemony is all about. And do you think that there has been a time when it worked and was a good thing? No. Uh, my <laughs> argument is that liberal hegemony can only put, be put into practice in a unipolar world. Mm -hmm. And when the Cold War ended and the United States was by far the most powerful state on the planet, it was the unipole, it was in a position to put liberal hegemony into effect. And liberal hegemony has failed. And my argument is that it is a foreign policy that in effect contains the seeds of its own destruction. There was no way that it could work. So what is it within that? That What are the reasons? What are the factors that mean that this is kind of an internal contradiction? Why, why isn't it something that can work? Well, there are two major problems um, that liberal hegemony runs into. One is called nationalism and the other is called realism. <laughs> And nationalism is the most powerful political ideology on the planet. And nationalism is an ideology that privileges sovereignty. Uh, what nation states, what modern nation states do not like is the idea of other states interfering in their politics. And you want to remember that what liberal hegemony calls for is the United States and its allies to interfere in the politics of every country on the planet for the purpose of turning them into liberal democracies. And once you set off on the road to populate the globe with liberal democracies, you're going to find yourself violating the sovereignty of all sorts of countries. And what happens is you get resistance. So if the United States invades Iraq for the purposes of doing social engineering and turn it into a liberal democracy, you invariably get an insurgency. You get resistance against the United States, and that's what's happened. So nationalism has caused liberal hegemony all sorts of problems. It's made it very hard to spread liberal democracy. Then there's realism. Countries like Russia and countries like China, which are quite powerful countries, even if they're not great powers. Those countries do not like the idea of the United States pursuing policies that they think threaten their security. So the United States, as people in Europe know very well, pursued NATO expansion. The United States tried to push NATO right up to Russia's borders. Well, the Russians resisted. And finally, it all blew up in February 2014, when a major crisis broke out over Ukraine and really poisoned U.S.-Russian and Russian-West European relations. And this is really realism getting in the way of liberal hegemony. It's realpolitik. A country like Russia does not want a military alliance that was once 
a mortal enemy of the Soviet Union, of course, which was the predecessor state of Russia, on its border. So the argument that I'm making here is that a liberal foreign policy, also known as liberal hegemony, bumps up against nationalism and it bumps up against realism. And nationalism and realism trump liberal hegemony at every turn. And on the point about NATO, which you're sort of famously, is it fair to say, not a huge fan of, um, especially when it comes to expansion, what do you think Europe's alternative is when it comes to its own security, other than NATO? Well, I think from Europe's point of view, mm. the best solution for keeping the continent peaceful is NATO, mm -hmm. keeping the Americans in Europe. I often say I have never met a European leader or anyone in the European, different European foreign policy establishments who wants to see the Americans go home. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that Europeans intuitively recognize that the United States serves as a pacifier in Europe. And if the United States were to leave Europe, it would be difficult for Europe to avoid going back to the future to having security competition on the continent. So NATO is a good thing for sure mm. for Europeans. From the American point of view, it's a different matter, especially today. The United States faces a rising China in East Asia as its major threat. And the United States is in the process of pivoting to Asia. My argument is there's no compelling reason for the United States to stay in Europe and what the United States should do is it should largely remove its forces from Europe and it should concentrate on containing China and East Asia. This would be good from an American point of view, but not good from a European point of view. Why is it important that the U.S. constrains Chinese expansion in East Asia? Because the United States wants to make sure that there is no country on the planet that dominates its region of the world the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. The reason the United States is in Europe has to do with World War II and the Cold War. Mm -hmm. The United States was not in Europe. There were no military forces in Europe in the 19. 20s and the 1930s. After World War I, American troops were withdrawn. And throughout most of the 20s and all of the 30s, the Americans stayed out of Europe. We came into Europe during World War II. We, for the purposes of preventing Nazi Germany from becoming a regional hegemon in Europe. Then during the Cold War, we stayed in Europe to prevent the Soviet Union from becoming a hegemon mm. in Europe. Mm -hmm. But there is no country that threatens to become a hegemon in Europe. The only country in the world that threatens to become a regional hegemon is China in Asia. And that's why the United States is so concerned about China, and that's why it's pivoting to Asia. Germany is not going to dominate Europe. The Soviet Union is not going to dominate Europe because it doesn't exist anymore. And Russia, the remnant state with the most power, is not going to dominate Europe. So there's no reason for us to be in Europe for the purpose of preventing a regional hegemon. But there is a regional, a potential regional hegemon in the system, and that's China. And we should be concentrating almost all of our efforts on China. Because also the, the US in Europe after the Second World War, it wasn't just sort of a military presence, it was very much an economic presence. And when you look at what China's doing in Africa, in, in Latin America too, I mean, it's not just restricting China to Asia. China's sort of moving outwards beyond that, wouldn't you say? Well, first of all, the United States would have remained economically and diplomatically involved in Europe after World War II uh, in the absence of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The United States would have gone home after World War II militarily in the absence of the Soviet Union. It's the Soviet threat that kept us in Europe militarily. That's why we formed NATO in 1949. And I just want to be clear, it's the fact that there is no equivalent to the Soviet threat 
or to imperial Germany or to Nazi Germany to keep us in Europe. Mm -hmm. Now, with regard to China, there's no question that China is interested in being a superpower. And by that, I mean there's no question that China is interested in developing the power projection capability to throw its weight around in places like Africa and places like the Middle East. I do not, however, think the United States will get deeply involved in contesting China in Africa. I think it's in the Persian Gulf where the United States and China will compete with each other. Mm -hmm. The fact is that China gets roughly 25% of its oil from the Gulf now. And that number is expected to go up significantly over time. So the Chinese are going to be very interested in the Persian Gulf. They're in the process of building a blue water navy so that they can project power into the Gulf. And of course, the United States will stay in the Gulf and go to great lengths to contest the Chinese in that region of the world. If as you suggest, the U.S. moves its attention from Europe to Asia. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to kind of withdraw from this attempt to propagate this liberal hegemony, right? It seems to me that we're talking about two different things. One is how involved should the U.S. be in the world? The other is how, to what extent should the U.S. sort of poke the bear of various competing powers, right? So you're sort of saying Russia... Um, Russia got upset because of NATO expansion and because of the threat of a, a military presence on its borders. But surely if the U.S. moves to competing with China, there's a danger that the U.S. will just start poking that bear instead and it will just move its sphere of, <laughs> of interference to a different region of the world. Or am I completely well, misre misrepresenting this? <laughs> I just want to be clear. It's impossible to pursue liberal hegemony mm. in a bipolar or a multipolar world. Because if you have two great powers or yeah. three or more great powers, which is what bipolarity and multipolarity mm. are all about, those great powers have to compete with each other for power. Yes. They have to worry yeah. about the balance of power and therefore you get security competition mm -hmm. and sometimes war. And the only time you can pursue liberal hegemony is in a unipolar world because the one great power in the system. Remember, in a unipolar world, you only have one great power. Mm. That, uni that unipole doesn't have to worry about security competition because it's the only great power in the world. Okay, yeah. okay mm. so there are no great power mm. politics. Now, the world that we're moving into is a multipolar world right. with the rise of China and the resurrection of Russian power. So liberal hegemony is effectively being taken off the table. And what's happening is that the United States is pivoting to Asia because China is a great power mm. and it is the most formidable threat to the United States because it may become a regional hegemon if it continues to grow. So the United States will be moving away from Europe. How much remains to be seen? Sure. But it will be moving away from Europe and shifting its emphasis to East Asia because of the China threat. Now, one of the really big questions that emerges from this set of events that we see is that the United States has effectively pushed Russia into the arms of the Chinese because of the Ukraine crisis, right? So one of the big questions moving forward will be whether or not Russia continues to be a close ally of China or whether Russia, because of its geographical proximity to China, becomes fearful of China's rise and allies itself with the United States. Now, that's hard to imagine at this point in time because relations between the United States and Russia are terrible. But one could imagine a situation where if China continues to rise, Russia switches sides and joins with the United States. And you want to remember that during the Cold War, for the first half of the Cold War, China and the Soviet Union were allied against the United States. Then China flipped sides, and it became China and the United States against the Soviet Union. Yeah. I would not be surprised at all. Indeed, I would expect that eventually China 
will become enough of a threat to Russia that Russia and the United States will be allies uh, in a balancing coalition designed to contain China. One aspect of sort of classic liberal foreign policy is the use of military intervention, largely on paper at least, to try and prevent atrocities. Do you think this is always wrong? Or do you think there have been some examples where that has been necessary and in some ways successful? I'm a realist, and by and large, realists believe that states should not intervene for human rights reasons, uh, that states should use military force for one purpose, and that has to do with preserving the balance of power. Uh, I do think, however, there are certain circumstances where it makes good sense to intervene for human rights reasons. For example, I was in favor of intervening in Rwanda in 1994 uh, when the genocide was taking place for purposes of shutting it down. This is not consistent with my realist foreign policy perspective, but I think in those instances where the United States is in a position to intervene to present to prevent a genocide or to shut down a genocide or to shut down a massive violation of human rights, uh, that it makes sense to do that. I mean, Rwanda is an interesting example, I think, because um, it was an internal civil war. You weren't largely dealing with other external powers. You know, Kosovo, you still have boys who are called Tony Blair. <laughs> Yemen, for example, where you could say we're sort of on the on the edge of atrocity, that would be far more complicated to intervene in. I mean, do you think that that would be a place where intervention would be would be valid? Well, I think in the case of Yemen that the United States, because it's been assisting the Saudis, has played a key role in helping to fuel this civil war. Um, so in a funny way, we have intervened uh, in that war, indirectly in the American case uh, for the most part, but uh, in doing so, we've made a terrible situation worse. But couldn't you say that, I mean, maybe I'm misinterpreting U.S. foreign policy, but isn't the decision to ally themselves with Saudi Arabia based on a relatively realistic, pragmatic concern to balance Iran in the Middle East? Is to say U.S. involvement in, in Yemen is not based on any kind of liberal sense of protecting anyone. It's based on the fact that Saudi is friends with the U.S. and it's helpful for the U.S. to support their friends. Isn't that quite a realist position? I'm not sure that the Iranian threat in Yemen is anywhere near as significant uh, as the Western media says and as the administration says. Uh, and uh, even if Iran's influence is significant, I don't think it's necessary. In fact, I think it's wrong to foment a civil war uh, that involves the deaths of, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people for the purposes of containing Iran. Uh, yeah, no, I, sorry, I didn't mean to sort of, yeah, put it in such stark terms. I was just trying to say that we shouldn't be thinking of intervention as purely a liberal tool. It's also a tool for realist foreign policy people. Yeah, I, yeah. but if we're intervening in a particular country for realist reasons, I have no problem with that. Where it becomes tricky for me is where we're, is are those cases where we're intervening for human rights reasons. Because as a realist, you're not supposed to intervene for human rights reasons. And what I'm saying is I would like to relax my realist worldview <laughs> in those cases yeah. where you can intervene rather easily and you can prevent uh, a great crime against humanity, to put it bluntly. Uh, I think it's just very hard for any person to say that he or she would never intervene uh, for human rights reasons. Uh, sure. I, I'm interested in minimizing uh, uh, foreign policy interventions by the United States for things like spreading, for the purpose of spreading liberal democracy and so forth and so on. But there are cases where I would intervene for non-realist reasons. When it comes to um, sort of U.S. withdrawal on this sort of Note, would you you could argue that Trump is sort of the ultimate realist then? 
Well, it's hard to know exactly what Trump is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that he has a coherent foreign policy. Uh, I don't think he's ever thought in any systematic way about how the world works and how the United States should behave. I think he basically flies by the seat of his pants. But I do think that some of his instincts are quite realist. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I do think that he understands correctly that doing social engineering, especially at the end of a rifle barrel in small countries all around the globe, is a prescription for disaster. Uh, so there are some policies that he's pushed that I think make sense, but there are many policies he's pushed that I think don't make sense. And furthermore, the way he's executed almost all the policies, including the ones I agree with, uh, has not been uh, not been good. <laughs> Do you think on that note that he's much of a departure from Obama? Well, it's important to remember that President Obama was elected on the platform that he was going to stop doing social engineering. Remember, he talked about doing nation building at home. Mm -hmm. So I think that President Obama had a lot of President Trump's instincts, uh, or let me put it slightly different, I think candidate Obama <laughs> in 2008 had a lot of uh, Trump's instincts, right? Uh, Obama was then elected and he was beaten back by the blob, which is a, a, a phrase we use to describe the foreign policy establishment uh, in the United States. And if you look at the interview that President Obama gave to Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic Monthly a few months before he left office, uh, it's quite clear that Obama is acknowledging that uh, although he was elected to change American foreign policy, he ultimately lost uh, to the uh, foreign policy establishment or the blob. They beat him uh, into submission. And as he says in the interview, he was forced to play according to the quote-unquote Washington playbook. Trump is a different matter, though. Uh, Trump is not being beaten back by the foreign policy establishment. Indeed, this is one of the principal reasons the foreign policy establishment is so enraged to President Trump. Uh, he treats them with contempt. He treats their ideas with contempt. Uh, and they feel that he's undermining not only the foreign policy that they prefer, liberal hegemony, but he's also undermining the liberal international order. Uh, so President Trump, I think, is uh, he's sui generis. Uh, I don't think we've seen many people like him in the history of the United States. I second that. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, yeah. Um, so within this realist view of the world, uh, I just wondered what space there is for fighting for principles that you believe in as a nation. And if there is space for it, how do you go? How would you go about doing it if not through intervention of the sort we've been talking about? Are there mechanisms by which we can say advance liberal democracy in the world, or should we just completely forget about trying to do that? Well, I think that you want to remember that there are other ways of advancing liberal democracy than military force. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, one of the principal reasons the United States has gotten itself into so much trouble is that it's tried to advance liberal democracy at the end of a rifle barrel. Sure. So the United States can employ diplomacy and it can use economic tools to promote democracy around the world. Moreover, it can build a vibrant liberal democracy at home and serve as a model for other countries. It can be so successful that other countries will want to emulate it. Obviously, a lot of this conversation has revolved around things that are quite concerning. Um, where do you get your optimism from? Is there anything in looking uh, your outlook on the world? Do you find reason for optimism? There's not much reason for optimism uh, <laughs> at this point in time. I mean, if you look at what's happening politically inside the United States um, and you look at what's happening politically inside of Britain, uh, it's very depressing. Uh, there's just no question about it. I'm a staunch proponent of liberal democracy. Uh, and in the American context, I'm a staunch proponent of immigration. And uh, I think given what's happening there, uh, there are serious reasons for concern. 
And if you look at international politics, I mean, one good thing from my point of view is that liberal hegemony is basically finished as a foreign policy uh, because of the rise of China and to a lesser extent the rise of Donald Trump. But I'm not happy about the rise of China uh, because the rise of China means that the United States is going to be involved in an intense security competition with China, and uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, I'd rather see the United States as the unipole and pursuing liberal hegemony, as bad as that policy is, rather than see the United States have to deal with a potential peer competitor. And China, indeed, will become a potential peer competitor if it continues to grow. So the world has become um, uh, remarkably messy. Uh, if you go back to the early 1990s, uh, when Frank Fukuyama wrote his famous piece, The End of History, it all looks so promising uh, inside the United States, inside the various states in Europe, and in terms of international politics more generally. Uh, but over the course of the next, you know, roughly three decades, uh, from, you know, let's say, 1989 up to 2019, uh, things have not gone well at all. It's quite <laughs> remarkable how, it's really quite remarkable how pessimistic people are today compared to how optimistic they were back in the early 1990s. And again, the central thesis of my book is that the main reason for this uh, is that the United States pursued a boneheaded policy, which is uh, liberal hegemony. It was the great delusion. Well, what a great start to 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Undercurrents listeners. Do <laughs> yeah, a cheery, cheery. No, I mean, so many people try and scramble around to find something positive to say. So it's in many ways very refreshing for somebody to be, yes, actually, it's quite rubbish actually, at the moment. Bad. What can you say that's positive at this point? Well, lots of lots of people are in, no longer in poverty and they were in that period. You know, education rates have gone up. People are safer. I'm trying, I'm desperately trying here. <laughs> no, I, th I think that's right. I mean, one of the arguments, you know, I, I complain about the open international economy that it, uh, it caused all sorts of problems, uh, greater economic inequality, people losing jobs in places like Britain and the United States. But as a number of people have reminded me, and I, ha I have an article that I've written where I put it in what, sort of what you said. You want to understand, John, that this hyper-globalization did cause problems, but it also lifted huge numbers of, out of, out of people out of poverty. And, it, and the Chinese love what has happened over the past 30 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, so you, from their point of view, but even, but even, even there, they're in trouble today. Everyone's in trouble. Everyone's, Everyone's in trouble. Everyone's in trouble. Yeah. That's what we can. That's what yeah. we can conclude. There we go. Equality of opportunity. <laughs> yeah, there we are. Okay. All right. Well, John Mearsheimer, thanks very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, so now it's amazing to be joined by Margaret McMillan. Margaret is an emeritus professor in international history uh, at the University of Oxford and currently a professor of history at the University of Toronto. And she is one of the guest editors of the latest issue of International Affairs, which is titled World Politics 100 Years After the Paris Peace Conference. Margaret, thanks so much for your time today. Well, thanks. Thanks to Chatham House for publishing our issue. <laughs> okay, well, so... Let's just begin at the very beginning, uh, as is as is sensible. Uh, so, what exactly was the Paris Peace Conference, and what happened? Where was, where did it come from? The Paris Peace Conference was summoned, first of all, by the Allies, so that they could talk among themselves about what sort of peace terms they'd offer to the nations who were defeated in the First World War. Primary among them, of course, was Germany, which had been the centerpiece of the Central Powers. Austria-Hungary had disappeared as an empire, but then a little Austria and a smaller Hungary were going to have to have peace treaties as well. Bulgaria was going to have to have a peace treaty, and so was the Ottoman Empire. But the one that was going to be the most difficult one to make and the one they started off with was the treaty with Germany, the one that came to be signed at Versailles, and so is known as the Treaty of Versailles. What they did was assume that they would make peace in the way that they 
had made peace or peace had been made after the end of other conflicts. And so the model they had was the Congress of Vienna, which had met to wind up the Napoleonic Wars. And they assumed that they would get together as allies, draw up a common set of peace terms, then offer them to the defeated nations, and then there'd be a full-scale negotiation. In fact, the Paris Peace Conference turned out to be rather different, and I think there were several reasons for that. One is that it took the Allies so long to come up with any common agreed peace terms, and it was so difficult, and the peace conference very nearly fell to pieces, that what had been a preliminary peace conference turned into the real thing. And when they finally got the German peace terms cobbled together, they decided they couldn't open a full-scale negotiation again, that they'd simply give them to the Germans and tell them to sign or not. And the Germans were given, I think, two weeks to put in objections in writing. And so that made it different. What also made it very different was there was an involvement of a lot of non-European powers. And this was really the first, not the first time, but it was the first time on this scale that non-European powers had taken part in a major international conference in Europe. And so you had Japan represented, a um, number of Latin American countries represented, China was there because China and Japan were both allies in the First World War. Thailand was there, um, parts of the British Empire were there, India was represented in its own right, Canada was represented, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Newfoundland. And so that gave it a very different flavor. What also, I think, gave it a very different flavor is that you had a concentration of power, as you'd had at other times, but you now had also this other factor of public opinion. And so publics around the world were looking at what was going on. There was something, I think, like 700 journalists in Paris covering it. So there was huge international attention. And it also turned into something a bit like a world government um, for a brief period, for about six months while the the leaders, many of the leaders were there. Because you had people coming with petitions, women, for example, asking for suffrage, African-Americans asking for rights more than they had, of course, um, members of, of various European empires asking for independence. And you had people with causes to push. You had humanitarian causes. You any, All sorts of people came. And so you had a very interesting set of things going on, which was partly about peace terms, but it was about more than that. And what publics expected, and there was tremendous public enthusiasm, was that somehow the war would be wound up, those responsible for it, and everybody at that time on the winning side felt that the defeated were responsible for starting the war, that that, they would be punished somehow and they would pay reparations to help make up for some of the damage they had caused, but that also something better would come out of it. And I think there was a lot of hope, and of course a lot of it focused on Woodrow Wilson, the American president, that somehow a different way of managing international affairs would develop, that instead of the balance of power, which had worked more or less in Europe for much of the 19th century, but had proved in the end to be unstable, there would be some sort of international agreement, some sort of international organization, which which took form in the shape of the League of Nations, and that there would be a new way of running the world, and that this new League of Nations would provide collective security for its members but equally important, would work to make the world a fairer and a better place, which would improve the lot of people around the world, not just those who had won. And so it was a very complicated event and with a great many expectations, many of them contradictory. I mean, on the one hand, you want to punish those who'd lost, and on the other hand, you want to build a better world. And this was going to make it tricky. And so we thought that looking, that 2019, of course, is the 100th anniversary of what happened in 1919. We thought by looking at many of the issues that were discussed there, many of the questions that came up there, the successes and failures of the Paris Peace Conference, and looking at how those track through the next 100 years, we'd be able to say something about the world of today. And spoiler alert for everybody, it didn't really work in some ways in that we have the Second World War. What do you think its sort of long-lasting impact was, and do you think, it was, do you think we can look back on it and see it as a success? I don't think we can look back at the Paris Peace Conference and see it as a complete success, but I think we, my view at least, is that we shouldn't look back and see it as a complete failure. And my short answer to those who say that decisions made in Paris in 1919 led directly to 1939 is, so what was everyone doing for 20 years? You know, there are 20 years when you had a great many decisions made, you had friendships made, enmities made, you had all sorts of things happening, including, of course, a Great Depression which pushed politics to the extremes and and tended to put democracies and capitalism under tremendous strain and the international order under tremendous strain. So I think it's too easy to say decisions in 1919 led directly to 1939. An awful lot happened in between. 
I think what you can say is some of what happened in 1919 helped to create the conditions that made the Second World War possible. And so the resentment that the Germans felt about their treaty helped, but didn't put Hitler into power, but certainly helped the Nazis, helped the, those who wanted to attack the peace settlements make their mark with, with the German public. And Hitler and the Nazis, Hitler particularly, was very clear that he wanted to undo the Treaty of Versailles. But I don't think the treaty was as bad as it's sometimes been portrayed. The trouble was that part of the treaty was a fudge. The Allies knew that Germany could never pay the reparations that were being demanded. But how did they say to their own people, look, we've had a four years war, we've lost all these lives, the north of France is devastated, France had lost something like a third of all its industrial capacity and infrastructure. How do you say to the French taxpayer, to the French mother, to the French father, to the French white widow, how do you say it to the British as well? How do you say it to the Italians? How do you say, look, you're not going to get anything, we're just going to start again? And it was very, very difficult to do, especially at the time when people felt that Germany and its allies had, in fact, started the First World War. And so I think what the statesman assembly in Paris did. They knew Germany could never pay the bill that was being totted up, and so they fudged it. And so they wrote an amount, or they, they didn't write an amount into the treaty, they said it later, but they set it up in such a way that Germany paid in stages. Until it had paid one stage, it didn't pay the next one. And by far the largest of the tranches, the amounts that Germany was meant to pay, was in the third stage. And it was never going to pay it. And the Allied leaders knew it was never going to pay it. But it satisfied their publics for the time being. But what it did, of course, was make the Germans convinced that the Allies were trying to grind them down. And so, yes, there were things that, that you can say could have been done better. But politically, I think very impossible to say, OK, let's let Germany off. Let's just make a peace. Let's start again. Let's, let's let, let bygones be bygones. That was hard in 1919. Commentators today spend a lot of time trying to draw parallels back to yeah. certain periods, where, whether they say, oh, this is reminiscent of the 1970s or the immediate yeah. post-war or the 1930s, particularly with the anniversaries of the First World War having been going on for several years now. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, there's a feeling in 2018, 2019 that things are very similar to how they were in 1913, sort of pre this kind of something is about to happen. These tensions are boiling up together. I just wondered what you make of that and whether yeah. you think doing this sort of exercise is actually helpful. <laughs> I've said some of it myself, but what I always say very carefully is that history reminds you of what might go wrong. It offers you, you previous examples, but it doesn't ever repeat itself exactly. You know, Times have moved on. We're 100 years later and the world is a very different world. But there is enough, I think, happening before and after the First World War that we should look at it and think, you know, that ended badly then or that caused problems then. Let's just be careful. I mean, I think history, in my view, and offers warnings. It doesn't offer a clear blueprint. It doesn't offer a clear set of prescriptions of how to avoid trouble. What it does is offer you warnings. I mean, much like you see signs on a road, you know, bad curve coming up. You know, just be careful here. And I think what it can also do is open our imaginations, and I think this is important, the imaginations of those who are actually making decisions, to possibilities. You know, we tend to get stuck on tracks and we think, you know, we've got a policy, it's going this way, we've, you know, we've got to bring about this particular result. And sometimes we forget that there might be other ways of getting to what we want to get to or that the goal we're trying to get to is not the only goal we could be trying to get to. And so I think history... I think states people who read history have a better sense of those possibilities... And, of course, the final, well, there are many things history does, but I think the final important thing that history will do is give us the background to issues and put them in context because people who are making decisions today are remembering certain things. You know, the Chinese have a particular view of the world and they remember, of course, the century of humiliation. The Americans have a different set of memories. The British have their own set of memories. And this, I think, affects national thinking and national policies and worth knowing about it if you're dealing with others. Of course, yeah. And do you think politicians today sort of sufficiently pay attention to history? Or do you think they sort of just deal with it in sort of soundbitey? Well, some do and some don't. I think it's complicated. I mean, some politicians just pick a little bit from history and say, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've noticed this very much in the debate over the referendum here in the UK a couple of years ago and then the subsequent debate. You know, people will cherry pick bits of British history and they'll forget some of the other bits to make their case whether to leave or remain. And that will cherry pick bits about 
Britain's relations or the British Isles' relationships with Europe. If you're if you're for remain, you you tend to think of it as a happier relationship than if you're for leave. You know, if, if you're for leave, you see Britain as being very different from Europe. Europe is over there across the channel. If you're for remain, I think you tend to be more conscious of the ties. So I'm not sure history helps much on that when it simply becomes a, a subject of debate. Some politicians and political leaders and others don't know history at all, and I think that's bad. I think you would like them to have some sense of the past, and we can all think of political leaders who know absolutely zero history, and I think it makes them less effective as leaders. You know, one of your most effective leaders here in the UK, and I say this as a Canadian, was Winston Churchill. Not always, but certainly during the Second World War, he had a great sense of history. And I think it helped him to get perspective on what the United States was likely to do, what the Soviet Union was likely to do, because he had that long, long perspective. To bring it back to conferences, my impression, which may well be wrong, uh, please correct me, is that we seem to have more and more political conferences and summits and sort of international meetings between leaders, be it within international organisations or just sort of bilaterally. And I wonder whether that's something that has changed between 1919 and now. And I wonder whether you have a view on whether perhaps these sort of endless stream of people traveling around the world, I mean, it's Davos week as well, uh, saying similar things to each other um, and never actually getting down to policy is a problem. Is there a point where talking has to stop and action needs to begin? I think there's a point at which it's a very interesting point. I mean, I think there has been a sort of passion for summits ever since the Second World War. And it, and it used to be, I mean, heads of state or monarchs, who, you know, whoever was the head of a state did used to meet occasionally, often in, sometimes in, in very important face-to-face -face negotiations. I mean, you know, the Tsar of Russia was there at Vienna and he actually took, in, in 1814, 1815, actually took, play, took part in the negotiations. But I think so a lot of those meetings in the past used to be symbolic. They used to be you know, gestures of friendship or gestures yeah. of whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think the symbolic side has perhaps become a little bit too important. I mean, I think the G7 has become a sort of, um, what's the word I want? It's, be it's become very formulaic. I mean, they meet, they put on silly T-shirts or shirts and they get their photographs taken and then they make a few statements and, and until the last one they have a communique and then they all go off and they don't, there's no real serious negotiation and I think, you know, that I think has become a, a, a problem. I mean, President Trump is talking about going off to have an, another meeting with Kim Jong-un, and I suspect it will produce as little as, as the previous one did. What I think we're missing out on is the sustained negotiations with people who really know their briefs, who have good political direction from home. And I think we need the experienced diplomats. I mean, I think there's been a real downgrading of diplomats and, and a misunderstanding of, of the real value of diplomats. I mean, we had a prime minister in Canada, the, the previous conservative prime minister, who said diplomats don't do anything but go to cocktail parties and eat canapes. And that really, I think, was not to understand what it is. I mean, you need people, if you're going to do negotiations, lawyers know this, unionists know this, people doing labor negotiations know it. If you're doing negotiations, you need people who are really well prepared and know what they're doing. And, of course, they have to take direction from their political leaders, but you need that experience and that ability. Mm -hmm. But also, wouldn't you say that in 1919, you had three or four big states who could make huge decisions? It's far more diplomatic now. There are more people at the table. I think the big states still do make the decisions. I mean, you know, when the United States got involved in the Yugoslavia crisis... Then and NATO got involved. Then decisions were made. When the United States and the Soviet Union, it hasn't happened. You know, it used to happen occasionally. They would they would get together on something, and, and things did get settled. And you're right. There are far more international players, and that's one of the things that came out very clearly in in this commemorative issue, that there just are more international players, even than there were in Paris. There are far more countries in the world, but there are also all the non-state actors who have, I think, more of a role than they had in 1919, and I think that's made a difference. Last question. How would you prevent World War Three? <laughs> Easy one. How would you prevent World War Three? Well, you know, I, I think that again is where diplomacy comes in. That is where trying to understand what the other is likely to do. You know, one of the terrifying things that has come out of the Cold War since records have been released is how often the you know, top people on both the Soviet side and, and the Western side got it wrong mm -hmm. and made assumptions about what the other was likely to do, and it turned out to be completely wrong. And I think the more information we have, the more we keep the, the, the lines of communication open, what may save us 
and it, I think, helped to save us during the Cold War, is, is the weapons have now become so devastating or potentially devastating that we might all be dead rather than just one side. And I think that may help us. I mean, you know, we, we know that people are working on chemical and biological weapons, but, you know, the danger with those is, is they will not just stay within neat national borders. And I think even cyber war, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I think, activity going on in the cyber war field. But I think, you know, the problem with cyber war is if you disable someone's computer network or internet, it doesn't start again, doesn't stop at the borders. You know, and how do you prevent that? I mean, you know, this, the, the world is so linked mm -hmm. through cyber, it seems to me difficult to isolate a particular national system. So I'm afraid uh, we've run out of time. There's so much we'd like to ask. Uh, but, uh, but Margaret, thank you very much uh, for oh, your time. Not at all. Sorry, I didn't Thanks. realize we were still being recorded. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. No, it's all good. Thanks so much. So, yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, so, thank you. Nice questions. Really interesting stuff from Margaret McMillan there. Um, the whole edition of International Affairs that she co-edited is online now and all of the articles are open access. That's right. Everything is free to access until, until the, the end, end of, of March. March. So get downloading. Go and have a uh, look. You can also watch a video of the event that Margaret later spoke at with Lawrence Friedman, who also wrote for the issue. Uh, that's on the Chatham House website now. God, she's so great, Ben. She is great, isn't she? I've... Uh, let's I be did. fair let's be fair she's so great when the recording stopped I did slightly fangirl about the Reef Lectures it was top yeah the Reef Lectures were great to, be, they're to phenomenal. be honest and I thought that my favourite one was actually uh, the one they did in Northern Ireland yeah I thought that was uh, a really really interesting and actually one. the audience questions where you had people from both sides of the conflict reflecting yeah. on their experience and how they both still felt that they were fighting for a cause and yeah it was, yeah it was and whether or not that counted as a war or not oh it was just and I and I really enjoyed the women episode too, mm -hmm. um, especially some of the questions at the end. So yeah, yeah. have a listen to the reflectors as well if you haven't, because you're missing oh, yeah. out. They're cracking. Uh, that's just that's just plug one in our attempt to get the BBC <laughs> to retweet our podcast. Uh, <laughs> there you go, Beeb. That's. Uh... Um, so we've kicked off 2019 with um, two quite big names, to be honest. Um, but we've got some really exciting plans for the rest of the year. So. Hopefully, we will see you in two weeks' time when we have two other very exciting interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>